but I will encourage you to join me in Second Corinthians. Corinthians. Oh, I did that all last week too. Chronicles. Chronicles. If you're in Corinthians and you find chapter 33, tell me. Because there shouldn't be one. Second Chronicles 33. It's, here's the thing. For several years, I taught Corinthians at uh, Cornerstone Bible Institute. And it just got to be the thing. You say, Corinthians, Corinthians. You just say that word so much that it's ingrained in your thoughts. So, maybe that's good for us to go to Chronicles today. That's a good place to be. Now I've got to find it. Oh, there it is. Second Chronicles, chapter number 33. Today I want to start with verse number 13, and I'm going to read up to verse number 17. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty, and he heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate, and he encircled the Ophel with it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountains of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. Heavenly Father, we have an interesting section of scripture before us here today. And one that I pray, as we study it, will be instrumental in striking a chord in our heart. That which revolves around the things that you have done for us. And how great you are, especially in giving your Son on our behalf. Lord, this section of scripture works very much like a mirror. It shows us what kind of people we are. But I'm glad it never ended there. But it also shows us what a God you are. And we, like Manasseh, would like to come to that same conclusion. To find out and to know that you are God. So work in our lives today and in our hearts for each of us come to this place uh, needing the same thing. We need you. And I pray that you provide for us abundantly today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk this morning a little bit about scars. Sounds like a terrible topic, doesn't it? Scars. Wikipedia, of course, that's our source for many things, right? Definition of a scar a scar is an area of fibrous tissue that replaces normal skin after an injury. 
Scars result from the biological process of wound repair in the skin, as well as the other organs and tissues of the body. Thus, scarring is a natural part of the healing process. Okay. Most of us have them. I've talked before about one I have here in my hand. You can't see it. It's only about uh, maybe three-quarters of an inch long. What's nice is, though I still see it and I can feel it, it is healed. I would hope so, because I was a little kid when it happened. If it hadn't healed by now, I'd be in trouble. I was having an argument with my brother Tom. All right. Someday, maybe some of you have met Tom. If anything went wrong in the house, it's always Tom's fault. It always was that way. Um, whether it was his fault or not. It was just, that's the little brother syndrome, right? Uh, but Tom and I were having an argument one day over a baseball cap. And I remember it very vividly. I remember the hat. Though I can't tell you exactly what was on the front of it. It was a team of some kind. But it was a kind with the mesh back. You remember the white mesh backs and the colorful front. And it was, it was one of those hats that had the little cap on the top. The little uh, uh, material knob on the top. I don't know what they even call that thing. But in order to attach it to the top, it has this metal clip that held it there at the top of the material. And this one had one piece of the metal clip sticking out. And I found that out the day we were having our argument because I was holding that cap in my hand pretty tightly because I wasn't going to let go and he wanted it. And he tore it out of my hand. And that metal clip tore into my hand. And it cut a very deep gash in my hand. I saw it bleeding right away. It was, it was deep enough. You could look down in there and say, ooh. And I kind of clenched my fist all up so it would stop bleeding. And I held it there. And that was about the time my mom came around to the to- to- corner. And we were both in trouble. Um, and so I went through that. I never told her that I had cut my hand. Or what terrible things my brother just did to me. But I can tell you this. I remember the story just like it was yesterday. This is my reminder. When I see the scar, I think of that day. That was a long, long time ago. For the most part, we know scars just aren't removed. They're there. Sometimes you try to hide them. Sometimes if you have a scar on your arm and you don't want anyone to see it, you wear long sleeves. People do that to hide scars, or if it's on their neck, they wear a high collar or scarf or something to hide it there. Uh, anymore, people might use tattoos to try to cover up scars and things of that nature. I guess there's other techniques out there to deal with them, and different surgeries perhaps to help remove them, but uh, I would just simply say this. I don't think any of us is fond of them, are we? Scars, as we know, can be physical. But they can be emotional. We use that. Uh, They can be mental. They can be on property even. Furniture might have a scar on it. Because of something you bumped or, or knocked over. Trees have been known to have scars on them. Like when you run into it and you tear the bark off of it. For years, people drive by and say, hey, that's that tree they hit. See that mark? 
a scar stays on the trees as well. School buses. Now, I say school buses on purpose. It was in the fifth grade that we were going on a field trip, and, and the, we were loading up in the school bus. And I don't know where we were going, but for some reason our teachers all had hard hats, but we didn't. I don't know what that meant. Um, but we were going to some place that they needed protection. And uh, apparently somebody was not getting into their seat fast enough, and the fifth grade teacher lost his temper. And he took his hard hat and smashed it up against the ceiling of the bus, just about five feet or six feet in front of us, and put a dent in that bus. He had a blue helmet. And I remember that very well because I rode that bus for years to come. And every time I sat down and I looked up at the ceiling and there was that bluish dent in the ceiling, I remember the story of the teacher that lost his temper. I remember his name, and I'm not going to say it, because I don't know, he might still be out there somewhere. But even to this day, I remember what that blue mark meant. Now, the key to all this is to say, I can remember. I could remember this, and I could remember that, and I could remember that, and I could remember that. And it's the value of a star. Outside of its healing properties, I've come up with two observations today that I want to carry you with. Stars serve as a reminder of an event. And stars serve as a reminder, for the most part, not to do it again. Not to do it again. I take you to the life of King Manasseh one more week this week we've spent some time in this chapter 2nd Chronicles chapter 33 we spent some time detailing his sin that was not pleasant we spent some time dealing with the consequences of his sin and that was not pleasant we looked last time at his repentance and his restoration and that was much better to talk about but I could only try to imagine what that was like. Put yourself in his sandals for a little while and think this through. The last time his subjects saw him, the king was being dragged off to Babylon in chains. The commentators suggest by the nature of the word that the chain was attached to his nose. He was put into some prison, we assume, and held there for some time. We don't know how long, the Bible doesn't say. But it does say, in verse 12, that the time came when he was in distress. And that's when he prayed to the Lord and humbled himself. We like the fact that he repented. The Bible says, as well in verse number 13 that the Lord brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. So the Lord was gracious to restore him. The Lord didn't have to do that. But he did. Now try to think Manasseh's life with him here. He's traveling back to Jerusalem to gain his throne. We don't know the details, like I said. 
other than the fact that God brought him back. We could assume things. We could speculate and guess wildly without any support, of course. Did he make a deal with the Assyrians? Was there something political going on here that, that they said, let, let him go back and he's going to be this for us and he's going to be that for us? Uh, I don't know. Maybe he was a model prisoner. You know, he reformed in prison and now he's acting right. He's, he's head of this department now inside the prison. He's helping all the other guys do it right. So maybe he got a parole because he was a good guy. We don't know. That's the point. We don't know what did that other than the fact that God let him free and God restored him. But as he's journeying back, I have these thoughts that I think I would have thought. How are my subjects going to receive me? How, how is my, my cabinet, if they had a palace cabinet, how are they going to receive me? How are my advisors going to receive me again? Uh, how is my staff going to receive me? How is my cook going to receive me? That's an important guy in the kingdom, isn't it? How am I going to be received going back? After all, he's returning as a different man, isn't he? He was known for his sins. He was known for the way he corrupted his society and all that lived in there. So corrupt that they liked it that way. And they participated in it. They were all part of it. And he's heading back a different kind of man. How are you going to walk back into that room? Can you imagine the strategizing in his head? How do we do this? Uh, how, how am I going to tell them that I'm I'm right with the Lord. How am I going to tell them? How am I going to show them that I'm right with the Lord? How, how am I going to convince them that I'm a different person? And even more, how am I going to convince them to be different? Could you imagine those thoughts? You're walking along with him, and he's trying to figure out how this will... I, I don't try to minimize any of that, because how would you re-enter your former home, or your former job, or your former neighborhood, where once you lived as a notorious sinner, and now that you're saved? How do you step back into that? And show them that you're a different person. I suggest to you that there were some scars that Manasseh had to deal with. More than just the spot that was probably in his nose where he wore a ring. And probably more than the marks of shackles on his wrists or his ankles. Every place he looked was a reminder of his sin. The palace was a reminder 
of his sinful life. The throne was a reminder of his sinful life. The living quarters were reminders of his sinful life. The streets which he loaded up with idols were a reminder of his sinful life. Even the temple itself, for it says that he took and put idols in that temple to worship to these false gods. That too was a reminder of what he had done. People would be a painful reminder to him as he encountered them and recalled the things that he had done that scarred up their lives. Places would be a painful reminder to him of what took place there. Remember, we think it was Manasseh that martyred Isaiah. Could you imagine becoming a righteous man and thinking back on that one? I suggest to you that Manasseh had a lot of scars. A lot of reminders. So what does he do? What does he do? Here we start in verse number 14 of our passage. It says, Now after this he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gaihan. Oh, good idea, Manasseh. Do a building project. That will take your mind off of it. Now, don't assume that's what I mean. <laughs> he starts to build his wall on the west side of Gaihan in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. He encircled the Afel with it and made it very high. And he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Jerusalem. He built a wall. A wall. Commentators say, well, he might have been building that because of the Assyrians. After all, they're the ones who came in there and captured him. And maybe he doesn't want to be captured again. So he's building that wall for his own protection. Some suggest that he sees the nation of Assyria on a decline, and he came back, though he might have made a deal with them, thought, I could revolt just about now. If I just build this wall, I'll be safe, and then I could revolt against these people. And I know they're going to come, but I'm going to be okay, because I'm going to build a wall. Some people suggest that that might have been on his mind. But I found something interesting as I was mapping this out, and I'm just going to suggest something to you today. Manasseh built a wall on the western side of that city, Jerusalem. It gives the, the length and all that that he worked with, and how to the fish gate and all that, and you know all those places, right? No, you probably don't. Most people don't. They say, where is that? It's really from the top all the way down the side of the west to the bottom. Actually, a little further than normal. For a wall in that day, he went even further because it says he closed in Afel. He said, okay, that sounds very interesting. What does that mean? Well, if you trace the wall coming down, and if you go past Afel, like it says, to encircle it, you have also encircled something else. The temple. He built a wall along the side where the temple was and all the way down around it. I'm going to suggest something to you. That temple meant something different to him coming home than what it did when he left. Before, it was a place for his idols. 
it was a place where he had grotesque religious practices. But now, it is a greater treasure to him. Now it is different. I can see him, among everything else, seeking to protect it, rather than to pollute it. And I find it interesting. First thing he did, he built that wall to protect something that had become a treasure to him. Notice the very next verse. Verse 15, he also removed the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord. He first set up protection around it, and now he's going to clean it. He went to where the altars were built in the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them, the idols, he threw them outside the city. He had a lot of cleaning to do. Now, very, very likely he used servants. But I'm going to have some fun for a minute. Nobody had cleaned up that place when he was carried off. That's true. Nobody went back to cleansing the temple and practicing things as they should have been. Nobody. When he came back to town, everything was set up just like it was and probably being used just like it was. But here he walks in and says, no more. No more. What a surprise it was to the idolatrous priest to see him come in the door one day. And he says, all of this has to go. And he starts to clean. And I picture it like it's, it was just him. Walking through and grabbing an idol and tossing it into the wheelbarrow. They're saying, what are you doing? And he grabs another and he tosses it in. And he grabs another and tosses it in. And he starts making this pile of these idols that he had set in that place. Every one of them would have been a painful reminder to him of what he had done. Don't you think? That would be hard to do. Each and every one of them were picked up. Each and every one of them was hauled out that door. Now, the temple did not sit right up on the wall like you just walk outside and you're outside the city. He had to go down the street pushing the wheelbarrow. See my imagination for a minute? You allow me to do this, won't you? He's pushing the wheelbarrow down the street full of all the idols that he had made and worshipped. He's going past house after house after house of people he had deceived to worship those things. He goes out the gate the guards are there saying, whoa, this is unusual. What's happening here? The king walks out the gate, pushing a wheelbarrow full of idols. He goes over to the trash heap, and he dumps it there. What a surprise to everybody. But that's what it says, to some degree, because it says, he removed the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord. And then it says at the end of verse 15, he threw them outside the city. He made a pile out there. There's a pile sitting there, serving as a reminder of that event, but also a reminder, don't do it again. Now, he had to show his people he meant business for the Lord, right? And so in verse 16, he set up the altar to the Lord. And he sacrificed peace offerings there and thank offerings on it. Now, we 
stand by those words as if, okay, good. They're significant offerings. A peace offering and a thank offering. They're more than just the average sin offering. The sin offerings, because I've done something wrong, I identify it and such like that. But a peace offering is one that, number one, shows that you're right with the Lord. And number two, you bring guests to view it and share it with you. A peace offering was not done in, in private. A peace offering came with a barbecue and a potluck dinner and everybody else rejoicing together with you that things are right with the Lord. That's the first thing you wanted to do. Let's invite everybody in here and let them see I'm right with the Lord. And then he offers up a thanks offering, which obviously would match its word. He's thankful for what God had done. Now, that was never done quietly in the Old Testament either. You declared why you were thankful when you gave this offering. And here's Manasseh very publicly, very publicly showing the people that God had changed his life. What a surprise it had to have been to everybody who watched it. What a surprise to those who had served in that temple for all those years. And all the others, the idolatrous priests, all of a sudden were unemployed. And he changed everything. And he's visibly, audibly speaking out of his praise to God for what he had done for him. That must have been very difficult to do. The ritual wasn't so hard, I think, as the fact that he was now an example. He was supposed to be a righteous example. That's what the kings are supposed to be. That was his job, to represent what is right before the people of Israel. And that's a hard thing to move into after you've lived so wrong for all those years. Every king was to rule in such a way that the people learn and practice righteousness. And how do you turn a whole nation around now? Look at the very next phrase there in verse number 16. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. He ordered them. I would suggest that wasn't easy either. Manasseh was a different man, yes. The practice of sin was being eliminated as best as he could. But the shift from unrighteousness to righteousness in the public. Wow, is that a big, that's a big thing. All the scars that had to have been there in his mind and in his heart. Reminders of the events of how the people followed him and what's wrong. And yet the reminder never to do it again. I, I would like to report to you that everything went smoothly. But I can't. I would like to suggest to you that everyone say, Hey, great, we're excited to see a righteous king. Let's get eager about this. Let's follow in his steps. Let's do it all the way he said. Because he ordered them to do it. But I suggest to you that wasn't the case. It says in verse 17, Nevertheless, that's a big word, more than just all the letters of the alphabet it takes to say it, it says an awful lot. Nevertheless, the people still 
sacrificed in the high places. Okay, only to the Lord their God. Now, that to me doesn't sound like, well, to them maybe a compromise, to the Lord it's not. Because he said, the temple is the only place you worship. The altar is the only place for sacrifice. They had compromised even on that point and said, okay, we, we, won't, we won't tear down our little shrine out there or up there or there or there. We'll just change the God out. We'll worship your God, Manasseh. Probably with the same desire to worship the other gods. A ritual. A thing they did. Now you say, well, how do you know, Pastor, that that's exactly what they were thinking? They're worshiping God. I suggest their hearts were not in it. I would suggest to you even that their minds were centered on a pile of idols sitting in the trash heap. Now, they didn't rush down the street and pick them up. And they didn't rush down to set them up. But they waited till Manasseh died. You want the rest of the story? It's not pretty. But it's down in verse 18. Where it says, The rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayers to his God, and the words of the seer who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was entreated by him in his sin and his unfaithfulness and the sites which he had built high places and erected the Asherim and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the records of Hosei. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. Then Amnon, his son, became king in his place. Verse 21. Amnon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done, and... Watch. Amnon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made. First chance he got, he went down to the pile and brought him back. Amnon, his son. He served those false gods. He did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. And Amnon multiplied guilt. And the end result of his life is that he was assassinated. Not because I think the people said, boy, a very unrighteous man, let's kill him because he's not righteous. I think they were so unrighteous that they just killed each other for power, for position. Amnon was slain by people within his own household, his own people that were to protect him. Now I want to ask you something here because you just heard the story of his son. And it's not pretty, is it? What kind of scar is that, folks? When your own conversion doesn't mean a thing to your own child, is that a hard one to bear? I set before you a couple of thoughts here. When a man's life is changed, it doesn't mean that there aren't any more scars. Things that remind of earlier events and things to remind you not to do it again. Manasseh 
That's his life. You've just walked through his life with him. You listen to the story. You come away very thankful that this man changed. And yet there is this reservation in my heart that the people did not change with him. And his children did not change with him. The end result was a painful one. A very sad story. I read that and I say, what a dark way to finish a story. Because we probably have our own share of scars like that. We don't like to revisit them. We don't like to be reminded of them. But they're there nonetheless. I want to move you to something positive in all this. Because that's what I read to you in that definition. They have a job that is in the healing process. I want you to think about this for a minute. Because as we're talking about somebody who bore scars, I set before you a Savior. A Savior who died on a cross. A Savior who died on a cross for our sins. Are we not thankful for His forgiveness? Should be. Aren't we glad He purchased us and He cleansed us from all our sins? Isn't that what Scripture says? It's great to be redeemed. It's great to be made new. It's great to be called a child of God. To have the hope. To have the peace. They have all the blessings that come to us because we are His children. I love that verse in Ephesians chapter 1. That we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of Christ Jesus. Wow! There's a catalog if you really want to see what all God has done in choosing you, adopting you, redeeming you, forgiving you, cleansing you, sanctifying you, setting you apart by the Holy Spirit, sealing all that all chapter 1 of Ephesians will just lift you up into the heavens as you read it. It's an amazing thing that God has done that for us. Who wears the scars? Who has the constant reminder of that event? What it took to redeem us. Go with me to John chapter 20 for a minute. John chapter 20. Verse number 24. Let's start right there. Jesus had died, had buried three days in the grave, rose from the dead, was seen by several out there, out and about, the ladies, couple of the disciples now he meets with them in the room Thomas was not there Thomas said oh I'm never going to believe it <laughs> you tell me you saw Jesus there's no way he's dead and the only way you're ever going to prove it to me what a statement he made was that the, he can stand before me and I can put my finger in the mark of that scar that's when I believe it. 
Well, it's great, because in John chapter 20, verse number 24, it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord! And he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. We're intrigued with that passage. The Bible doesn't say in a singular verse that Jesus has these scars that he wears forever. It does not have such a verse. It'd be nice. It would put it all to rest, the argument and the debate and all the rest with that, whether or not Jesus did. But here's what I do know. Clue number one. Jesus has just appeared to Thomas and the disciples in his resurrected body. That is the body he wears for the rest of eternity. It is what we also call the glorified body. And there Jesus stands there, and what does he have in his hands and on his side? The scars of the crucifixion. Let me also add this as somewhat of a strong proof, I think. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, when John is again getting a view of Jesus Christ and he's transported in a vision up to see the events going on in heaven, he sees something rather remarkable. Now, this is going to be at least 2,000 years in actuality from the time Jesus Christ rose from the dead because it's been about that long. And it still hasn't happened yet, but John got to see, foresee what would happen. And in Revelation chapter 5, he said, I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book in its seven seals. So he's worried. Who's going to open this book? I want to know what's in it. Who's got the power to do it? Nobody has it. And then he says, Oh, don't worry about it. The lion will open it up. He said, Ooh, that's what we need. We need a lion to do it, don't we? Bring in the power. And I looked and saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. And this is what he said. As if slain. A slain lamb. Who might that be? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Goes on to say that he took the book and opened it up. He's the Lion of Judah, yes, but he's also the Lamb of God. 
and he was slain from the foundation of the world. In God's eyes, those scars have always been there. In reality, they were put there when he died on the cross. Through eternity, he keeps wearing them. That's what John sees. He still has this appearance as if he was slain. Now this scene plays out during the tribulation period, which is yet to come. We're not there yet, but he bears the marks of one who had been slain. From all indications of these two passages I set before you, Jesus intends to keep the scars. They're not a painful reminder of his own sin. They're not a painful reminder of something he had done. But they do serve as a reminder, folks. Should that be the case, they are a reminder to those who caused them that God is very serious about sin. It's a reminder to those who caused them that the price tag of sin is more than we can ever pay. It's a reminder to those who caused that that we have a Savior who paid that price. It is a reminder that Jesus actually did die for our sins and is now risen again. How do you feel when you look upon somebody else and see a scar that you have caused? We may feel pain and we may feel shame and we may feel regret and a host of other things. But can we not also remember joy or relief or love? Knowing that he did that willingly for us. He took our place. Those scars belong to us. And he took them for us. Jesus told his disciples that they were to continue this practice. This thing in front of me today, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. We take of the bread and we take of the drink. And just like he said, to serve as a reminder of him and what he had done. So this is our reminder and his reminder is in his hands and in his side. Every time we see him, no doubt it's going to prompt us to worship him all the more. I think it serves as a good reminder of what Jesus has done for us. But let me add the second thing that it does too. It also reminds you, don't do that again. When it comes to sin, folks, let's get straight to the point. We are sinners, we know that. We live in a sinful world. We know that too. We're not going to be set free from sin until we actually step into heaven. And I can't wait. But in the meantime, we're to practice like those who don't do it. Right? We're to live godly lives. You need a reminder not to do it again. Look at the scars of Jesus. Look at what he has done for us. It ought to make us different people. It ought to make us different people. This is what it says in Romans chapter 6. What shall I say then? Paul's writing. 
Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We've been baptized into His death. Therefore we've been buried with Him through baptism into His death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, listen carefully, our old self was crucified with Him. In order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. It's meant to make us different. He who died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, this is where it just pounds you right in the heart. You ready? Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's your reminder, folks. I can read on and on, but I stop at this point, because we're going now to this table. To look again at what He's done. To look again at the stars. To see that event that changed us forever. And the reminder, don't do it again. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Isaac Watts called us years ago to look again at the scars of Christ on his hands and his feet and his side and his head. These scars remind you of his death. They remind you, don't walk down that path of sin anymore. I don't know how else we can be motivated to see it and to live accordingly. In our world today, that's not easy, is it? Manasseh would tell you, no, it's not easy. You may think that just acting the right way, you're going to change everybody's life. Ask Manasseh if that works. It's a hard world we live in, isn't it? Not to discourage you, but to say, we are here because of a Savior. And we're to walk and live like Him. Isn't that who we seek to please above all others?